Hello and welcome to Mending the Gap, your guide to women's mental health research. My name is Catherine Saunders and I will be your host. I'm a third year PhD student at the section of women's mental health at King's College London. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with the researchers themselves who are working to mend the gender gap in mental health research. In our very first episode, I'll be talking to Professor of Women's Mental Health, Louise Howard. She introduces us to gender differences and biases in research, and the importance of conducting research into women's mental health in a sustainable way. Please be aware that sensitive topics, such as domestic violence, are mentioned in this episode. So Louise, thank you so much for joining us today. I really can't think of a a better first guest to have on the podcast, so thank you. You're welcome. It's a real pleasure to be doing this with you. It would be really great if you could tell me a little bit about your background and the clinical and academic journey that brought you to this point in your career. So I was the first in my family to go to university. My father was a refugee. And I went and did a medical school conventional track to become a doctor. But in the middle of that, I did a psychology degree, which I found absolutely fascinating. And I really liked this space to think about things and to question things. So I was pretty clear that I wanted to do research after that. And being a clinician meant that I felt the research I wanted to do was going to be what was clinically important, what would make a difference to clinical care. So I did internal medicine for a while because I thought it was important to be a well-rounded doctor. And then I started my psychiatry training and I knew that I wanted to do a PhD. But before I did my PhD, I found each job raised interesting research questions. So my very first research question was actually, what should we do when we're asked to see people who have very serious liver disease and are being considered for a transplant? But the surgeons are concerned because there's a history of alcoholic liver disease. So that led me to think about, well, how well do these patients do? Are they being discriminated against or do they actually do worse? Um, And do they go back to drinking alcohol? So that was my first research project. And so it continued throughout my career, really. It meant that I didn't always know where my research was going to go. Um, And it's not always taken me down the paths that I thought I would go. So although I did a perinatal mental health research project for my PhD, in fact, several different studies based on what I'd been doing clinically. What I was thinking about at that time was about women with severe mental illness and what was it like for them when they became pregnant, when they had a lot of professionals and social care potentially being worried about whether they would cope with being a mother and what their needs were, what kind of support needs did they have and how well did they do? So that was my first major research project. But then as I started to work in this area and also have my clinics and see women um, with a range of problems, I became increasingly aware of the violence that they're experiencing in their lives. And when I adapted a scale called the Camberwell Assessment of Need, for mothers, we asked women what was important to them to be asked when they were being asked about their needs. 
and they talked about the violence and abuse in their lives and often said that people were asking about their childhood, but nobody was asking about the violence in their current relationships. They felt embarrassed to talk about them and they didn't know what to do. So this ended up leading to quite a large research program really on domestic violence and then subsequently on other forms of violence and the type of things that people present with in the NHS and how best could the NHS respond to people who have had these really traumatic experiences. So I think that the really exciting thing about research has been that it's it takes you down avenues that you might not consider important when you first start and you never quite know what you're going to be doing next year. And that's wonderful, isn't it, that something can snowball from something else. You can start somewhere and it takes you down a a brand new road looking at brand new things. Did you know from the outset that you wanted to research women's mental health specifically or was there a moment that convinced you? Well, I guess, as I said, I I started being interested in women's mental health because I was doing a perinatal mental health job. Mm. Um, I then started finding that there were areas of research that had been done that hadn't taken the needs of pregnant women or young mothers into account. And then, of course, I started thinking, well, are there other areas of um, psychiatry and mental health services in general where women's needs aren't being taken into account? And that, of course, snowballs into thinking, well, have clinical trials always included women and what happens to the evidence base around what's safe in pregnancy, how much research has been conducted in that. Then one starts to think about scales. Were they developed in terms of being gender sensitive or were they developed without thinking about gender or sex? Then one's thinking about, well, we know that there are gender differences in different mental health problems how much when one's looking at treatment interventions are those gender differences taken into account. And of course, then you end up thinking, actually, there's a whole area here that really hasn't been paid a huge amount of attention to. And that's when you think, actually, this is about women's mental health research, that there's a lot of research that just hasn't taken women's health into consideration or women's needs. So you identified lots of lots of gaps, lots of spaces where research was really needed. It just didn't exist. Yeah, although I I can't say I was the only person that was doing research in this area. Of course, there were others, but we were a relatively small number of researchers internationally and research funders weren't focusing on, on these areas. And there also weren't specific services in place for women either. So there was a lot to do. We've touched on identifying the gaps. We've touched on the needs that weren't being met. Why is it so important that we do research on women's mental health specifically rather than just mental health as a whole? Well, if we don't look at why gender differences occur and what impact that has on what people need, then we're not going to be able to provide interventions that are necessarily going to to be as helpful for women or as helpful for men. Um, so without looking, one doesn't actually know how insens- gender insensitive one's being. Um, and then once one starts to look, then one realises that there are gendered risk factors that one also need to be thinking about. And my 
My classic experience was of writing a large grant on domestic violence and abuse and mental health. And it was focused on on an intervention that could be trialled. And at the end of two years of writing this grant, stage one, stage two, lots of reviewers being very positive. At the end of all that, the funding panel rejected it. And the main reason was that domestic violence wasn't a priority. So for me, it, of course, may not have been the main reason. It may have been other reasons as well that this wasn't ranked highly. But just the fact that they could say it made me think, how can it not be a priority? This is endemic, um, endemic in, in women's lives particularly. But also, of course, thinking about intersectionality, it's also important to think about other differences. And just by saying domestic violence and abuse isn't a priority for the health service, one thinks you really are missing something here in terms of groups that we know are particularly likely to be experiencing domestic violence and abuse. So I then started to think about what are funders' priorities and how do we influence funders. And it's gratifying to see that things are changing and that we are getting gender-specific funding calls now. The Lancet series has focused on women recently. We're not just talking about mental health, we're talking about health research in general. In fact, one of the great articles published by The Lancet was something about feminism being for everyone. And I think the times really are changing and there's an increasing recognition that one needs to take gender and sex into account in research. And and the only way to do that is to actually change who is actually granting funding, who's thinking about funding priorities, who reviews journal articles, because often there's a problem there that people are assessing things without having seen that this different way of thinking about things is important. So I think that I can't quite remember your original question on this topic um, here, but I think it was something about how did I know that this was important? So, and, and also making sure that other people can see that it's important too, yeah. What do you think was driving the resistance to look at women-specific topics in mental health? I think one can talk about this in medicine generally, actually. I think that traditionally, um, until relatively recently, most of the people sitting on funding panels or who were academics were men and you know even now there's there's a relatively small minority of women who are leading academia in terms of of health research and you know we do tend to think about research in terms of what's happened to us as well as what's happened to other people and i think it just wasn't something that men thought of i don't think it was necessarily deliberate i think it was just that actually sometimes you know different people see things differently and that's going to happen for differences in men and women it's going to happen in terms of other groups such as you know black and minority ethnic groups who might say well hang on a second why are you not looking at ethnic disparities in access or you know ethnic differences in response to treatment so i think it's about having diversity this isn't only about gender having diversity throughout when we're talking about PhD students, about who's thinking about research priorities further up the academic chain. We need diversity to inform what is happening in terms of health. And a more representational 
body will kind of encourage and be receptive to more diverse research topics and more diverse areas of exploration. Yes, I mean, I guess nobody, I don't know if anybody's actually tested that hypothesis, but I wouldn't be surprised if that that was the case. Um, You know, if you have a group of people who are working out whether or not to give funding to something, and they all have done the same type of research, then it's unlikely that um, that they're going to necessarily understand what, what another perspective is. And I think you've touched upon this briefly with talking about the funding application that you submitted, and they said that domestic violence wasn't a priority. But what are the difficulties or controversies that you've encountered in this field of research? So I think, yes, as I've said, I think until recently, domestic violence wasn't seen a priority. Definitely, that has changed. I think that until recently, a lot of academics would raise an eyebrow if I said that there was gender bias in in research and would feel that that, you know, was really a little bit bit of a feminist talking there but actually it wasn't based on evidence and you know I think the Lancet series actually went out and got evidence to show how important gender was when it comes to health research and I like I say I think I think that is therefore changing it's interesting that different groups will see things differently so for example perinatal mental health research has always been something that has really only been the focus of a few academics. But there has been this huge expansion recently of perinatal mental health services, which is very exciting. But still, it's going to be challenging to meet the, the, the level of need there is. And everybody's concerned about the fact that women's mental health problems can have an impact on the whole family and what that means for the next generation. And... Now there is also a push towards thinking about paternal mental health, which is, of of course, really important. But we, I sometimes feel like, well, we haven't actually yet got maternal mental health right. We've still got a bit of a way to understand just what medications are safe if one's needing medication in the perinatal period. Um, we haven't yet got our services right. And... It may be that sometimes things have become fashionable and then they become unfashionable again, but actually we still need dedicated funding to get things better. And I don't think we've we've kind of solved the problem yet. So that worries me a bit in that it, you know, it's suddenly become quite fashionable. Um, but now the next thing is paternal mental health and then off the research bandwagon goes with that. And I, I think we need to sometimes make sure that this is something that's sustainable. That's something that worries me quite a lot is about sustainability of this type of research and about interest in, in continuing this, this area. Do you think it's maybe a case of trying to run before we can walk and that we maybe find one thing out and then we think, oh, well, we know it now and we can kind of move on to the next thing and we're, but we're actually not quite, as you say, we haven't quite got it right yet. Yes, I'm certainly I'm talking from a very clinical aspect here, but we haven't yet got our clinical services completely up and running and evaluated. Um, So I think we need to be careful to not overstretch services. I think, you know, it's great saying what's needed, but actually there's also this huge challenge of implementation and that also needs to be researched. And, And there is money coming down from 
the National Institute of Health Research, for example, to evaluate these new services. But I, I worry that we mustn't think that the, that's, that's solved then, because sustainability is going to be a big issue, particularly when you've got a new cadre of clinicians who've just been trained. We haven't got that many academics working in this area. I think we, we need to make sure that we have sustainable um, academic positions in this area and, and, and in terms of clinical services, sustainable services, even after the level of interest that there is currently is over. Yeah, I was just going to ask, what, what does sustainable look like to you? Well, in terms of research, I think it means having more than just a, you know, a, a few professors throughout the UK focused on women's mental health. There aren't that many academics working in this area. So sustainability would be about tenured academic positions in most of the leading universities in this area, whether it's women's mental health or whether it's gender differences. Um, it doesn't have to be only focused on women, but something about the intersectional disparities in in health and then like I say there is also the issue of sustainability in clinical services and continuing to research the interesting questions that women are presenting with in their clinic so one of our most recent studies looked at the um, the level of mental health problems in different ages and we were really struck by the um, identification of mental disorders in young women under 25. And this is interesting because the national surveys of men and women have found over time that there is an increase in common mental disorders and also self-harm in young women under 25. So we were intrigued to find this was also the case for pregnant women under 25. So we need to now start thinking, well, how well are we identifying and addressing that very specific mental health need? And there is huge interest now in thinking about the needs of young people. Um, and so, you know, just being aware of the new landscape makes one think, oh, that's, that's an interesting question. And maybe we can actually do something about that. So sustainability is about continuing to have people in place who can continue to go where clinical services are, are leading and the new questions that are being thrown up. What would you say are the key messages on gender bias in mental health research? Well, I guess you've touched on one of them, which is about why. Why does it happen that there is a gender bias in, in mental health research? But more importantly is how can we do something about it? There is these, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce the person's name, but I think it's Haidery or Hydery, has produced the Sega guidelines, which are thinking about, you know, how how to make sure that you are identifying sex and gender at each stage of the research process and when you write up to make sure that journals are checking that you've done these um, areas. So I think that's that's great. So actually thinking about reporting processes and and then of course you can use those guidelines in terms of developing grant proposals as well. The other key messages are that you need to be doing this across the piece. So if one's thinking about teaching, one's needing to make sure that um, gendered aspects of mental health, if that's what you're teaching on, are being taught about. Unconscious bias is being talked about. There is an increasing recognition that unconscious bias 
occurs in academia, no doubt about that. But I'd really like to see more research on how that's being addressed and positively changed. I'm still surprised that sometimes I can go and do some teaching to a group and I'm, I've been asked to teach about women's mental health in an afternoon, which is kind of mind-boggling in, um, in terms of how much one can possibly cover in the whole of an afternoon to allow any question time. So teaching content is really important. Key messages on gender bias, I think you know, that needs to be part of the research agenda. And I think I've already hinted on capacity building being a major issue. But like I say, I think the real implications are that we need to think about gender bias at every stage of the research process, from study questions right down to interpretation and then translation into policy. So it's huge, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot to do. But I think that the idea of having some framework or guidelines that you can implement in your own research to make sure that at each stage you're asking those questions and you will be more able to identify all the the differences and identify the gaps and identify new interesting research questions too. Yeah, so when we published a couple of years ago our commentary on gender bias in mental health research, we found a few examples. There's been some really great work done by um, Cynthia Harton and colleagues looking at that more broadly across psychiatry. So I think that um, people are now starting to, to point to areas where there is particular gap. So I think one of the areas that I find quite interesting thinking methodologically is about gendered covariates or gender as a moderator of response, which most, let's say, trials of interventions haven't been powered up to do, or, or well, they haven't even started to think about looking um, at gender differences in terms of interventions. But if we don't actually think in advance that we need to look at that and therefore we need to be powered to look at that specifically, then we're not going to necessarily find gender differences. So I think it goes, you know, right into the heart of how exactly are you analysing data? How are you even getting your data? So I think there's some really interesting methodological um, issues that could be explored more that could then potentially really impact on um, on our understanding of, of gender differences. So really trying to get get rid of the bias in the actual research would be interesting. So when you say gender as a moderator, what what does that mean for, for maybe listeners at home who don't know what a moderating variable is? So what I'm referring to is if you do a trial of a drug and you say this drug is effective um, and you would need to treat X number of people in order to um, to have an effect, then if you actually then stratify your your results and you look at men and women separately what you might find is that the drug is really effective in women but much less effective in men now unless you actually look for that difference if you're just lumping everybody together you're not going to know that actually it works for some people but not for others and in some ways this is really what personalized medicine is about um, which has become very trendy personalized medicine and actually which is great because of course gender is right in there you can't get more personalized than whether or not you're a man or a woman of course personalized medicine is talking about a whole load of differences and actually really being able to target interventions to the right people so I, I think that if we could get sex and gender into that personalized medicine agenda that 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 would be really helpful and that's where I mean that gender or sex can actually moderate 
So, like I say, change the response um, in terms of being effective for some but not being effective for others. And that has huge implications, doesn't it? Because we could be giving somebody a medication or even a therapy and we would think that it would work really well and actually it wouldn't work at all. Yeah, so one of my hypotheses that I'd be really interested in testing or seeing somebody else test at some point is that this isn't just about um, sex or gender, but it's also about gendered covariates. So, for example, we know that partner violence is more likely to be experienced by women than men um, and it's more likely to be more severe um, in in women than men does that therefore mean that when one's looking at psychological interventions if one doesn't identify partner violence which is likely to be quite common in your population and your intervention doesn't address partner violence does that therefore mean that the intervention is going to be less effective and that you need to tailor the intervention in some way that we don't really know Um, And I think that could be a really interesting research question in terms of psychosocial interventions or even antidepressant interventions, actually. Um, You might feel that, you know, an antidepressant is less likely to work if somebody's underlying causes is not addressed. Now, that might not actually be the case. It might be that people's depressive symptoms are stopping them managing to to get themselves empowered in that situation so you know it may be that actually an antidepressant could be really helpful but without examining that we don't actually know yeah it's a case of if you don't ask we won't know and I think you've made such a great case for why it's so important to be asking these questions and to be exploring these these issues that otherwise were perhaps flying under the radar so finally If there was someone who is listening and is really interested in this topic, what resources would you recommend for them for learning a bit more? Well, there's a very nice book written by Caroline Criado Perez called Invisible Women, Exposing Date to Bias in a World Designed for Men. It might be that other people in this series will also mention that book. And... um, I think it's interesting that that it's actually now out there as um, something that the general population are talking about and her book's been discussed on Radio 4, etc. So that's an an easy, accessible read. I think the Lancet series, the Lancet Women series, is a really good place to look at if one's actually specifically wanting to look at gender bias in research, in health research. If you're more interested in gender bias in mental health research, then, like I said, the most recent study by Cynthia Harting and colleague published in the Psychological Bulletin is a very good place to start because she goes into quite a few different areas when it comes to mental health research, also thinking about specific symptoms and how they contribute to specific diagnoses and whether there are gender biases there, which has been something that women have been grappling with for a very long time, particularly around certain diagnoses like borderline personality disorder. So you could go to the general bookshop now and get Caroline's book, or you could go to something much more specialised if you're interested in something more specialised. Great that there are resources and um, you know articles now being published about this area. Thank you, Louise, so much. This has been so interesting and such a good way to start off the series so thank you thank you so there we have it a brilliant introduction into women's mental health research 
Thank you again to Louise for joining me and sharing her experiences and her expertise on why women's mental health research is so important. Please do rate and review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at MendTheGapPod and join the conversation using hashtag MendingTheGap. We'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. Thank you for listening.